You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Father, we make this confession that you are indeed Lord over all things. And so we pray this morning that you would receive our worship, not because we sound nice to you, because you have made us worthy, Jesus. And so in you, hidden in you, all of our praise, all of our cries to you, all of our prayer to you, would be received and welcomed because, Father, you love us completely in Christ. So would you cause the rest of our, our time this morning to continue in worship, that it doesn't stop when we sing or stop singing, but it actually continues as we open your word that your Holy Spirit would teach us what we need to know, that would would shape our hearts in the places that we have tried to shape them ourselves that you'd soften off those harsh, round edges, the places you're still at work sanctifying us, and that our time in your word, our time in prayer, our time of confession, our time of communion would all be a continuation of worship, which is praise to you for your goodness. So speak to us, we pray, through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. Sorry, I'm in your way. I don't want your coffee, Charlie. Uh, Good morning. Uh, You can grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 20. Uh, We're studying the Gospel of Luke over the series series of a couple of years. Uh, Every January, we've started another section in Luke. We're in part four of five, so by May of next year, we will finish Luke's Gospel. Um, But if you need a Bible, some folks from our strike team are coming around, and they can get one to you. You can follow along. Uh, much of the scripture will be on the screens as well. Uh, welcome if you're, uh, if you're a guest or you're visiting this morning. We're glad that you're here. Uh, as I said, we're working our way through Luke's gospel. And um, for those of you who've been with us, I don't know if you've picked up on this, but since we started again this section in Luke, starting in January in Luke chapter 16, it almost seems like Jesus is becoming more confrontational. I don't know if you've read through Luke's gospel, but it's, there's this ramping up of intensity that we see, and, and we're seeing it here since we started back in Luke 16. Um, Jesus seems to be just as compassionate towards those who are in need of healing, just as compassionate towards those who are in need, and at the very same time, those who press him, those who are antagonistic toward him, he seems to pull fewer and fewer punches. And in fact, he seems to start challenging them head on. And this is important, I think, because Jesus isn't just indiscriminately picking fights with people. He seems to be intentionally and directly addressing those who are described in the parable that we read a couple of weeks ago. Again, if you weren't with us, as we're working through Luke, there's a parable of the, the ten minas, or the parable of the pounds. There's a phrase that is given in that parable which is helpful for us Luke 19:14 there are those who say we do not want this man to reign over us 
Those are the ones that are challenging Jesus and the ones Jesus is talking about. Later in that same parable, the king in that parable refers to those who don't want him to reign over them as enemies of his. So I I think it's safe to say that as we're moving through the gospel and following the story of Jesus, he's treating these Pharisees, these scribes, these chief priests, those that are confronting him, that are angry with him, he's treating them like enemies. Now, I don't think this is sinfully rude. He's not speaking rudely in a sense of sinfully against them, but he is speaking plainly and directly, even in his parables. And he makes it clear that he's speaking exactly to them. And we'll see that as we continue, even in our text today. They know he's talking about them, and it makes them furious. Because what he's doing is Jesus is exposing something in them. He's exposing in them an identity problem. They are thinking they're something that they're not. And that's what we're going to look at today. So let's read our text, uh, Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. We've got a lot to get to in just 18 verses, um, so stay with me. Um, I'll try to keep it uh, short and helpful, but this is what we got. Luke chapter, chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Let's read through verse 18. This is the word of the Lord this morning. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders, came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 9. And he, Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is God's holy word for us this morning. Now Luke's already told us 
that in this week leading up to the celebration of the Passover, that Jesus and his disciples, likely staying in Bethany, are now going into Jerusalem every day to teach in the temple. And so, on one of those days, Luke says, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, the chief priests and the scribes come up to him and demand of Jesus an explanation. Maybe you picked up on that in the language. Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Who is it that gave you this authority? It almost sounds finger-pointy, doesn't it? They're essentially asking Jesus, who do you think you are? Right? Who do you think you are? But Jesus turns it around on them. He's, wait, wait, wait. I'm, I'm not the one with the identity problem here, Jesus is saying. You guys think you're something that you're not. You think you're, you're waiting for someone or something else. But the reason you can't see yourselves rightly, the reason you all have an identity problem is because you don't see me rightly. So Jesus is, in a sense, turning it around and saying, it's not who do I think I am, it's actually who do you think you are. And this identity question I don't think is just for these Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders. It's easy to kind of point the finger at those guys when you read the Gospels, like those guys are dumb. But I, I think it's helpful for us to ask that exact same question, who do we think we are? And I think Luke's Gospel has been consistent in revealing the solution to this identity crisis. That only if we truly know who Jesus is can we truly know who we are. Only if we truly know who Jesus is can we truly know who we are. And in our passage today, I, there's kind of four areas where this identity of this religious, these religious leaders seems to be out of whack. And so maybe ours as well. Four I see in the text and in the parable that may be out of alignment. Ownership, excuse me, authority, ownership, grace, and justice. Four areas of misaligned identity. Authority, ownership, grace, and justice. So let's work through the text and hopefully it'll make sense as we go. First, what's clear before we even get into the parable is a problem of authority. Everything else in the text flows from this one. This is why we're reading not just the section of Jesus' interaction with them, but also the parable, because I think they go together, and everything flows from this one. It's very clear from the language that's used that the priests and scribes were not fans of Jesus. At this point, they were frustrated. They were fed up. Every time they tried to pin him to the wall, every time they tried to catch him in something, every time he, he snuck away, he got away, he worked his way out of it and frustrated these men. And part of what's happening there is they see amongst the people that their authority, their influence is shrinking and Jesus' influence is increasing. And this makes them all the more angry. And so if they couldn't stop him directly, they were going to question his authority. They were going to ad hominem him and call him names and, and question him. Or they were going to try to appeal to authority and say, well, where do you even get this from, Jesus? J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on Luke, says this, the, the chief priests ought to have examined his mighty works. They ought to have examined his teaching. They should have, in all fairness, should have compared to their own scriptures. But they refused to take either one course or the other. Instead, they preferred to call his authority into question. They could have examined what he was doing. They could have examined what he was saying. But instead... They just decided to question his authority. 
Who gave you the authority to turn over tables? Jesus. Who gave you the authority to forgive sins? Right? To question our motives, they would ask him. By what authority do you do these things? And Jesus, the master teacher, doesn't answer their question with an answer. He, asks, he answers their question with a question. He goes, hold on, let me ask you a question. He goes, and he says this, verse 4. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now Jesus was asking about John the Baptist. John the forerunner, the one who was to come before the Messiah, prophesied to be the one to, to prepare the way for the coming Savior. John lived in the wilderness. John had taken what's known as a Nazarite vow, never cut his hair, never touched fruit of the vine, juice, or wine. It was a strict vow. His life was wholly committed to the Lord. And he preached repentance for sin, and he practiced baptism in the Jordan for those who repented of their sins. And John had his own confrontations with the religious leaders of his day. In Matthew chapter 3, we have this interaction. It's a larger section, but, but Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 7, this is John doing his work before Jesus' ministry was public. But when John saw that many of the Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to his baptism, they were coming out to see him, here's what John said to them. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John's a little salty. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. His sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. I bapt he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork, which is the fork used to sift between the grain and the chaff, the stuff that is kept and the stuff that is discarded, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So clearly, John wasn't well-liked either. <laughs> and so Jesus, though, is on Team John, or John's on Team Jesus, or they're on the same team essentially. And so Jesus turns the question around and says, well, hold on a second. You're asking about my authority. Let me ask you a question about John. Was John's baptism for repentance, was that from heaven or from man? Essentially, he's asking, by what authority did John do what he did? And so they discuss it amongst themselves. Verses 5 and 6. Well, if we say that John's authority was from heaven, then he's going to ask us why we didn't believe John, because we didn't. But if we say it was from man, then all the people who do believe John, well, they're going to kill us. Because they were convinced that John was a prophet. So their answer is the political one. We don't know. We don't know. Which is just weird. Because of course they know. And then Jesus says to them, verse 8, And neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. See, they're assuming an authority that they do not have in demanding that Jesus reveal his source of authority. And Jesus dismantles that assumption real quick. He's like, actually, I don't owe you any explanation. I don't owe you any explanation. Now, let's be clear. There was some God-given authority for priests and religious leaders and Levites. 
And with that authority that God gave them in his word came responsibility. And that's why Jesus seems maybe harder on them than the average person, right? They should know that their authority is given to them by God, not theirs to wield how they'd like, but to serve as an authority under God's authority. It's a service to God's people. It's a service to the nations, but yet they don't see it that way. That's why Jesus treats them with strictness, because they were entrusted to lead and guide and shepherd and care for the people, and yet they used the authority that they had to enrich themselves and actually to keep the people in bondage to all sorts of other man-made rules and regulations. They did harm to those over whom they had authority. And so Jesus is pressing on this identity of authority. Authority is not yours to wield it as you see fit. So your authority, whatever authority you and I might have, does not come from title or position. Any authority that we hold in any facet of our lives is given to us. It's bestowed. Authority, biblically, is granted from one who has authority. So there are authorities in our lives that we're to honor and respect and follow. Right in the next section, Jesus deals with paying taxes. They're trying to catch him and get him stuck between, well, what he's saying about the kingdom of God and, well, he lives as a, you know, citizen of a Roman-controlled province, essentially. What, what do we do about Caesar? Right? But there's some tangible authority of the state that they're trying to leverage. We get that. We have to pay our taxes within the next two days, right? Yeah. <laughs> we just do. Right? There are kings and rulers whom God has placed over us in authority, and certain matters were to pray for them, for sure, and respect the office and obey them insofar as they honor the Lord. We've got no problem with that. Husbands in the rooms, in the room this morning, you've been granted an authority in your homes to lead your families through self-sacrificial love and a steady commitment to God and your family. It's granted to you. But it's asked of you. Wives, you're called to submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, not under subjugation, but trusting God's good design and His provision. Moms and dads, you together are given authority over your home, over any children that the Lord might grant to you, to lead them, to guide them, to raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, to point them to Jesus. Right? If you're a child and you have parents, God has placed you in that family underneath your parents' authority to honor them. Even in adulthood, as their authority changes, right? I still have an obligation under the Lord to honor my mother, right? The honor doesn't change. I here, I'm one of the pastors and elders here, along with every other member of River City, I submit to the elders of this church, even as a fellow elder, because I also sit under their authority as God's called elders and lowercase authority, if I can say it that way, or the leaders, the overseers of this local body. And so this is also where our American or Western sense of rugged individualism can get us into trouble, right? Where, where we serve as our own authorities. I am my own little autonomous sovereign self, right? Right? But we are ultimately not the masters of our own fate. We are not the shapers of our own destiny. We do not wield an authority that is ours 
But when we exercise any kind of authority, as elders, as dads, as moms, as employers, as public officials, we recognize that whatever authority that we do have has been granted to us by the one who is ultimately our authority. And because the chief priest didn't understand really how this authority thing works, Jesus just doesn't answer their question. You, you don't understand it. And then he proceeds to tell a parable. And that's where we're going to see these other three identity issues, ownership, grace, and justice. All of them flow, like I said, from the idea of authority. Look at verse 9. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. Notice now, Jesus turns his attention not just from these, these priests and these scribes who have challenged him. He's speaking to the people. And this is a clue for us that he's also talking to us. The parable is essentially this. A man decides to plant a vineyard. And he rents out that vineyard to others to work it while he's away. And apparently, in this agreement, some percentage of the crop would be given to the owner as a payment for leasing the vineyard. So the owner sends one of his servants to the tenants who are renting the vineyard to collect some of the fruit. This seems to be a reasonable contract, right? But the tenants decide to beat up the servant and send him away with nothing. So right away, we see that these tenants have an ownership problem. Right away. And so the man who owns the vineyard sends another servant, and they beat him up, and they treat him shamefully. So they've increased their cruelty, and they send him away with nothing. So the man sends a third servant, and this one they wounded, which kind of gives the indication it's maybe even a little more than beat up. This guy might be bleeding. And they didn't just send him away. It says they cast him out. So they throw him out of the vineyard. And finally... The man sends his very own son, the heir to his estate, thinking that if I send my own son, surely they'll respect him as they would respect me. The servants should be seen as an extension of the the master, the owner, but even if they aren't, at least the son would be, right? That's the thinking. At least the son would be. But when they see it's the son, it's the heir who's on his way to the vineyard, they plot to kill him. Why? They tell us so that the inheritance would fall to them. And so they throw him out of the vineyard, and they kill him. Now, when I read this, I think to myself, do they actually think the owner is just going to hand over the deed to the property? Gee, you killed my son. I guess I'm just going to have to give this to you now. That doesn't make sense to me. But they seem to be attempting to keep the vineyard and all the fruit for themselves. This is some weird, twisted understanding of squatter's rights, right? Possession is nine-tenths of the law. If they can occupy the property for long enough, then they can claim ownership of the property, perhaps, even if it belongs to someone else. We don't really know what their thinking is. It doesn't really matter for the sake of the parable. Remember, parables are parables to tell a main story. So, so what's the point? Why do they do this? They have an identity problem. They think they own the place, but they don't. See, somewhere along the line of their working in the vineyard, the tenants forgot that they're only renters. They were working this vineyard, but it wasn't their vineyard. They were harvesting these grapes, but they weren't their grapes. But, but hey, the owner's far away. I mean, why, why shouldn't it be ours? I mean, I, I've done the work. I, I've tended the soil. 
I've pruned the vines. I keep out the pests. And so because I do all those things, I just stopped waiting for the owner entirely. And in stopping their waiting and their anticipating, they forgot who it really belonged to. The vineyard is representative all through the scriptures as God's people. And God has entrusted stewards to care for and tend to God's people until the time when he will return and gather all the fruit that has grown. But they have not tended to the vineyard for the sake of their master. They have treated it like their own. They no longer see themselves as stewards, but as owners of a vineyard that is not theirs. We've talked about this a fair amount here at River City, that we too often have an ownership problem, right? We are really good at advocating for what's owed us, what we deserve. You and I often see our lives through the lens of what is ours, some of that we can't help, some of that's a product of the culture in which we live, but I think it's a reality our families, our homes, our money. And yet throughout the scriptures, what do we read? That everything we have, everything comes from God. All of it. From the breath in our lungs to the Benjamins in our bank account, well, maybe Washington's for most of us. All of it. Every single bit of it is from God and belongs to God. Everything. And we are charged as stewards. We are renting. Our time on this planet, renters. We don't keep it. All the stuff that we acquire, even good stuff, stuff we enjoy to God's glory, we are renters. We don't keep it. Life itself, renters. We don't keep our own lives. In fact, our life in Christ is now held in his hands. He keeps it for us. And so we quickly descend into an identity problem ourselves when we forget that we are stewards and renters and not owners as well. Now, clearly, a version of this was happening here, and Jesus is using this parable of those who are supposed to be tenants thinking of themselves as owners. So the question is, how do we know when we have started to drift into thinking of ourselves as owners instead of tenants or stewards? Well, like those in the parable, how do you respond when the things in your life are now, things in your life are now asked of you? When something finally costs, when, when you have to endure something, when we experience loss, is God still good? Is the one who owns the vineyard not owed whatever he wants from his vineyard? Is the Lord of the universe and the ruler over my life being unfair when something is required of me? Do I balk or do I worship? After everything that he loved was taken for him, his crops, his livestock, his children, Job records for us in Job chapter 1, this response from the man who just lost everything. He says, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground. Those are, all, those are all grief and mourning. Tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground in grief and worshipped. And worshipped. 
And this is what he said. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job grieved the losses and was reminded that he was not the owner. And he worshipped God. Now the renters in this parable had lost the plot. (laughs) They had forgotten that they were not the owner's And Jesus is telling this parable to the people listening so that they would not follow the same path of the chief priests who had forgotten that they were called to steward all that God had given them, not attempt to keep what ultimately belonged to him. And you and I are wise to listen as well, not to think of ourselves as owners of the things that God gives us, but to steward for his glory everything he places in our hands. So that's the second identity problem, ownership. Here's the third one that there is a wild misunderstanding of grace. Now, you might be thinking as you read this, I don't know where you see grace in this, Jake. Look at the response of the master. The first three times he sends a servant to collect his share from the tenants of the vineyard, what does he get? Escalating defiance is what he gets in return. They beat his servant. They, they beat the second one and treat him shamefully. They wound the third and cast him out. It's getting worse. So what does the owner do? Well, the expected response would be to get together a posse and to go to that vineyard and retake it by force. I mean, after all, at best they have some scissors and small knives for dressing vines. We'll go in with bigger swords and sticks and we'll take them out. That's, the owner would have been morally justified and legally justified to bring force to bear to remove the tenants who had, one, not held up to their end of the bargain, and two, beat innocent servants, innocent men. That would be the expected response. But instead, what does the vineyard owner do? He sends his beloved son. And don't miss that language is very intentional. He should send a brute squad. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Instead, he sends his son. And in a shame and honor culture, sending the son was exactly like the father coming himself. He was saying, if you don't respect my son, then you don't respect me. So the father is doing two things when he sends the son. In the first one, he's, he's appealing to their sense of honor and respect. I mean, beating up the servants is an interesting negotiation tactic. I will be honest. But they're still only servants. But if the son goes, there's an appeal there to their sense of honor. Right? You hear it in the parable. Perhaps, the owner says, perhaps they'll respect him. But the other thing the father is doing is he's extending grace. He doesn't have to send another one. But he does. He's already sent three servants. He's not required to send one more. Certainly he's not required to put his his beloved son in harm's way. The tenants have already disrespected him, already acted shamefully toward the owner. They don't deserve anything else. And yet he shows remarkable patience. And he sends his own beloved son as an extension of grace that maybe, perhaps, convinced them to submit to stop fighting, 
and concede to the owner of the vineyard. But they don't. In your Bible, it's likely that a title has been added above this section that says the parable of the wicked tenants or something like that. That's what it says in, in mine. But this parable could also be titled the parable of the gracious vine, or vineyard owner. And that's what I want to press on for us here. See, there's an idea, and I think it's related to this idea of authority as well, of where grace comes from. Who can grant grace? And this is where maybe we get this a little twisted. Maybe this one's a little more for, for us. And so here, this might ruffle some feathers, but I'm going to say it this morning. Glad we got a lot of visitors today. Like, what is this place? Here's what I'm going to say. That might ruffle some feathers. We don't give ourselves grace. Here's what I mean by that. You're like, please, Jake, clarify. Okay, here we go. Grace, by definition, is a thing that is given and received, but I don't think we bestow it on ourselves. Now, we can receive grace when it is offered to us, and we can extend grace to others. But I think it takes a two-way transaction. But there's a familiar saying that perhaps you've heard, maybe you've said to someone else, you just got to give yourself grace. Now, I understand that there's a, there's a reality of not being unnecessarily hard on yourself, and that is good. I just want to be really clear on that. But I think sometimes we misunderstand grace and we end up lumping together things that, that shouldn't be lumped together. Like we, we lump together areas of weakness and needed growth and maturity in our lives with areas that are maybe sinful in need of repentance. And in lumping them together, we answer with, well, you just got to give yourself grace. But I think part of the problem there is that it, it actually minimizes sin and it misunderstands growth and maturity and ultimately ends up misunderstanding grace. It's, it's true. Let me be very clear. It is true. We absolutely are desperate and in need of grace, often and regularly. We often, I often fall short, right? We all do. We often fall short as husbands and wives and moms and dads and friends and neighbors. All the time we do. Whether it's just a personality flaw or if we sin against one another, grace can be extended but the tenants here in the parable don't earn the gracious response of the owner of the vineyard. And they don't offer it to themselves. They receive it from the one who is in the position to offer it, even though they're not even looking for it. And in a clear reference to Jesus, the owner of the vineyard sends his beloved son as an offer of grace to those who were working the vineyard. So here's the point. Jesus is God's grace to us and the source of all other grace. So if we extend grace to others, it's because grace has been extended to us. In fact, I would argue this, that our willingness and our ability to extend grace to someone else is directly proportional to our willingness to receive God's grace to us. Jesus is the source of of all grace. And, and we fully and properly understand and receive grace as we surrender and submit to Jesus. And finally, 
Jesus ends this parable with correcting a misunderstanding of who and what is actually just. Look at the end of verse 15. What will the owner do to the ones that killed his beloved son? That's the question is being asked. Verse 16. The owner will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when the people heard this, they said, surely not. That is, when Jesus finished this parable by explaining that the owner would come to bring justice to those who murdered his son, the people were shocked. But is this surprising? I mean, if you murder the man's son, there's probably going to be a consequence, right? Verse 17, but Jesus looked directly at them and said, what is this that is written? And then Jesus quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he says that everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is a reference to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, which says many people of Israel will stumble over that stone. And a reference to Daniel chapter 2, which speaks of a stone that will crush the peoples and the kingdoms of the earth. Now, if you're tracking with me, Jesus here is talking about himself. Not only as a revelation of God's grace, but as a revelation of God's justice. He is the cornerstone rejected by his own people. So for the eternal kingdom, he will be the chief cornerstone, the one that holds the entire wall together. Oh, what a grace that he would be that cornerstone, secure and sure forever. But for those who are not in his kingdom, he will be the stone that they trip over and the stone that crushes them. And I think this is why people were shocked, right? The owner has shown himself to be compassionate and patient to this point. He wouldn't destroy the tenants, would he? But we all know it that it is not just to let wickedness go unpunished. That's anti-justice. So the identity problem for us is that we each think that our list of sins puts us on the he or she gets grace list. We don't think that our particular proclivities put us on the we need justice list. There's a great song by Johnny Cash called The Man Comes Around. It's a good one. One of the verses goes like this. There's a man going around taking names, and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. Jesus is the man who, when he comes, he's going to dole out mercy, overwhelming, undeserved grace and favor and justice. Jesus will come to his vineyard and he won't have to take names because he knows every name. He knows all those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life and he knows those whose names are not. He will come to welcome all those who are his into the fullness of the kingdom and to those who are his enemies he will come and he will crush them as he said because 
He's coming to do away with all wickedness and all evil and all pain and all sin. You see, justice is done when a penalty is paid for. And so our penalty is either paid for by Jesus on the cross or we will pay for it ourselves. Justice, eternal justice, is not something that we distribute, but something that Jesus distributes. Now, don't don't mistake what I'm saying here. We are called, as the prophet Micah says, to do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God, but we are not the arbiters of what is just. Jesus is. And he has laid it out in his word. And this is where the chief priests and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, those who just didn't like Jesus, they miss the mark when it comes to Jesus. Rather than seeing him as the the pinnacle and the, the source of all authority, they have set themselves up as their own authority. And from there, everything else flows. And this is where we can miss the mark. So, because if, you, if you're your own authority, then you get to dictate the terms of your life, right? You get to decide what is fair, what is right, and what is good. If you are your own authority, then, then you get to decide what needs correction and what's worthy of grace in yourself and in others. If you're your own authority, then because you've decided what's right and good, because you've determined what is worthy of grace, then you also decide what is worthy of judgment and condemnation. You've got a list. And all of this is an affront to Jesus as master and Lord. Because if he is the master, if he owns the vineyard, if he's the authority over all creation, then he sets the terms, he extends grace, and he fulfills justice. And so, in order to see ourselves rightly, we, see, we have to see him rightly. It's not till the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, where we read these words, often referred to as the Great Commission. Just before Jesus is taken up, ascends to the heavens, he he says this, that I've been granted all authority by the Father. I've earned it, my death and my resurrection. In that authority, Jesus then commissions his disciples to do what? To, To go into all the nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus had commanded them. And we are a continuation of Jesus' authoritative commissioning to his disciples to make disciples. Our mission as a local church here is to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. It's why we train up our children and youth in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It's why we proclaim the good news of the gospel. It's why we share together in baptism like this. By the way, we share together in this. Right, publicly celebrating the power of the gospel to change us. And in so doing, we are fulfilling what Jesus commanded his disciples to do. That's why we teach from God's word at the pulpit. That's why we talk about it in community groups. That's why we are working by God's grace to train men and women to know it and teach it to others as part of RCI and others. That's why we support ministry partners on campuses and in Bible translation work and in training and church planting around the globe so that the nations might know who Jesus is. That's why we invest resources of money and time to identify and equip potential church planters like Charlie shared this morning from within our own church family to plant and pastor more churches in our city and in our region so that the discipleship work will multiply. Not 
under our own authority, not for our own name, but because Jesus, who holds all authority, who is the source of all authority, has commissioned us to do so. So we know then who we are as individuals and as a church because we know first and foremost who Jesus is. That he is Savior and he is Lord. That this is his vineyard. That he's entrusted us all to tend it, that it might bear fruit for his good pleasure. And by his grace, we get to share in that harvest. So before you and I waste more time attempting to figure out who we are, By looking inward, let me just encourage us to set our focus on Christ, to see him for who he is, and then in him, find who you are. Would you pray with me? Father, we we see the, the, the stark reality of this parable. That 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 mixed together here is the reminder of. You are full of patience and long-suffering and and a willingness to extend grace to a wayward people. And for that, we are grateful because we are so often a wayward people. And yet we are struck with the reality that you are enduringly patient and you are just and righteous. You will come for your people. And that day will be full of fire and glory. And so would you help us in, in the ways that we have tried to, to shape ourselves? Would you help us instead of fixing our eyes inward to fix our eyes on Jesus? to see you, Lord Jesus, for who you are, to submit to you and your authority in our lives, to instead of pushing against your authority, like we see here modeled by the chief priests, instead that we would examine it, that we would run to your word, to hear what you have to say, And that your Holy Spirit would do what we cannot in transforming and changing our hearts to receive what you have for us. To receive your word, to be shaped by it. That you might build up and equip your people to be agents of this grace that you've shown us. That we would be those who are expressive in our grace, that we are generous in grace because we recognize just how overwhelmingly generous you are to us. That you, in your kindness, have sent your beloved Son to those who would kill him. That even those who would put him to death could be received back into your kingdom. That is our position. As the hymn says, it was my sin that held him there. 
until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. Father, would you help us to revel in your grace even as we come to the table, as we take the bread and the cup remembering what was paid for our forgiveness the grace that we've experienced and that would cause our hearts to fill with gratitude and our lips with worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.